0: There's a, a, a guy who I've been very fascinated with his life, his name is Robert Watson Watt. He was this nerdy weatherman in Britain, and and early on in the war, around 1940, well actually before that, probably 1937, he was a part of a group of scientists, the weathermen were kind of on the fringes of scientists back in the day, who were trying to figure out a way to stop the German war machine. and so. Everything was on the table. They were trying to come up with a death ray, no kidding, death ray, to try to, to, try to fry these pilots in their, in their planes because they were desperate. They knew the Germans were just running over Europe. They had this huge air force, and it's just a small little plate way across the, the, um, the, the ocean there to get to them. And so this guy said, you'll never get a death ray, but you could come up with a thing that ended up being radar. And so they said, okay, we'll give you a little bit of money, put you in this ghetto place, and you get your team of weathermen together and see what you can do. And they were really outcasts. They were underfunded, under a lot of pressure, and, and it ended up costing him his family, but they ended up coming up with what became radar, early warning system that really effectively won the Battle of Britain, allowed Britain to stay in the war long enough for the Americans to get in long enough to really stop the Nazi onslaught. But all that is a lead up to saying this one powerful scene where, Robert Watson Watt, who had been keeping his team alive, there's like five of them keeping them um, emotionally alive and engaged, and he lost hope. And he told his right hand man, a guy named Henry Tizard, he goes, this is hopeless. And Tizard poked him in his chest said, you don't get to lose hope. We get to lose hope. You don't get to lose hope. Is that true or not true? It's exactly true. He was right. In that moment, it was exactly right. If you're going to lead, you can leak hope, you can feel hopeless, but you don't get to lose hope. It's just not optional for you. There's too much at stake. Let me give you two stories that, from my life that have profoundly impacted how I think about this. The first one was I'm, I'm a chaplain in the Air National Guard. I was deployed to this little island in the West Indies called Diego Garcia where we were flying bomber missions into Afghanistan. It's a, it was a about four or five hundred airmen, and we were living in these tents, but they were air-conditioned tents, but tents, and so we ate together, slipped, lived together, everything was just compacted together, and so word got around really quick, and I was doing a pretty good job, I was homesick, I was discouraged, often discouraged, but I'm the chaplain, I'm wearing a cross on my shirt, a cross on my hat, and so I knew I just gotta, I gotta lead, I can take what I feel to the Lord. I had one battle, but I could take it to Him. But one day, I didn't even know, but one day, I was evidently kind of acting hopelessly, walking around. I was visiting all the work sites. I thought I was just sort of being myself. I got back to my office and knock on the door, and this lady from finance personnel comes and said, Chaplain, um, everybody's talking. Um, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and I said, What do you mean? And she goes, Well, you know, you, you seem down. Well, I'm, I thought to myself, yeah, I'm, I'm often down, but she goes, she goes, but chaplain, you don't get to be down. We get to be down. You don't get to be down. So the next was um, in 2009, I was deployed to Iraq, and this was an even more miserable experience for me. I had one battle buddy who was Justin, the drummer. <laughs> he was my chaplain assistant. And um, one day I went to, there was a soccer stadium on this base where I was that was like the size of an a American high school football stadium, concrete bleachers. And I laid down, I, on a lunch break, I went and I laid down in between the bleachers, and it's as miserable as I've ever felt in my life to that point. And I lay down where nobody could see me and put my cap over my face, and I was just, compl- I was just God, I'm miserable. I'm utterly miserable. I'm just sitting there. And then I heard breathing at the top of these bleachers. And I, I, I pulled my cap up and there was a soldier sitting there looking at me, breathing heavy. And I said, can I help you? And he began to weep. And so here's what I said on the inside. Give me a break. And then I got up and I helped the soldier. He saw my cross on my cap. So am I advocating for faking it? Nope. Am I advocating stuffing your emotions? No. Nope. I'm advocating for leading, not pretending, but leading. Feel what you feel, but lead by what you know, and then lead from his power, not your own. So what do you know to be true? You've been singing about it. You were praying about it. What do you know to be true? When hope is low, what do you know? When you're struggling with emotions, what do you know? Rich Mullen's song, Creed, you know it, based on Apostles' Creed. I believe what I believe, what makes me what I am. I didn't make it. It's making me. So what you feel, the chemicals that swirl inside of you when you're stressed, what you experience the circumstances and stressors that swirl around you, those are powerful, those are real, but you have to lead by what you know to be true, not the things that swirl in and around you. In the fall, I spoke to um, the Friends football team, which is a local NAIA football uh, university, and this was a day before a game. It was a beautiful fall day. They were in the bleachers. And normally the day before a game, people are fired up. You know, they're, they're laughing. They're high-fiving. Exciting. And they filed in like, like the Green Mile, like death row people, and sat in the, the bleachers, these athletes, and just like this. And they were just beat down from COVID. They'd, had, they'd been quarantined. They'd had people quit. Games canceled. It was amazing to watch. And I was talking to their coach and after he got up and he'd inspired them and spoke to them, and he said, Chaplain, I'm just, man, I'm struggling. I'm struggling. I'm lost hope. So there, there it was. Last week I spoke to a high school baseball team on the day of their game. Again, they're having their first game of the season. So what are you going to see when you have high school athletes at first? They're high-fiving. They're smiling. You can't get them to be quiet. They filed in, and they sat down like this. This is amazing. That, that's what's going on. You guys know that. And their coach, again, he was, he was encouraging them, speaking courage to them, and he pulled me aside afterwards. He said, man, I'm, I'm depressed. I'm anxious. So there it was. There's two coaches who are, both of them are feeling very down, but they know i got to step up and lead. So I got. I have a good friend. We will get to the Scripture in just a minute, but I want to tell you some stories uh, before I do. I have a good friend. he's excelled in his profession, um, became a person who spoke goes around and teaches and trains nationally. And as a, um, I've known him since he was 20. He's 52 now. Actually, I've known him since he was 19. And he, would des- he describes his home growing up, African American, as a hellhole. His mom was a drug addict who prostituted herself. His brothers had sex and drugs in the room around him. He was sexually abused by a stepbrother starting when he was a child. It was a terrible place. But he said, you know, as a t- when I think back on that, it was a hellhole, and God's presence en- enveloped me somehow. He just was, um, felt God's presence as a child. So fast forward many years, and about a month ago, he said, um, my stepbrother, the one who abused me, is dying in Atlanta, and he wants me to come see him. What do I do? I said, what do you want to do? He said, well, I don't know what to say. I said, have you forgiven him? I said, he goes, yes. I said, well, you can go say that. I said, you don't get do-overs on this. So, I mean, I I wouldn't blame you if you didn't go, but you don't get do-overs. So he flew to Atlanta, went to the hospital, looked at his brother and said, I forgive you for everything. Came back, we had lunch. He said, Terry, I felt nothing. I felt nothing before. I felt nothing during. I felt nothing afterwards. Now, contrast that with as a child where he continually felt God's presence. He's not a child anymore. Why did he go? Did he go because he felt like God wanted him to go? Did he go tell his brother I forgive you because he felt forgiving? He's a man. He went because he knows God is faithful. When he was a boy all he had was God, feelings of God's presence because he didn't have any history with God back then. He didn't know God's word. Now he's a man and he went because of Thirty years of experience with God's faithfulness, and I, I'm watching my friend grow more and more into a man before my eyes as he continues to lean into what he knows, not just what he feels. So don't hear me saying that your feelings are not important. My wife tells me that frequently because <laughs> she's she's more the feeler. I'm more I'm more the fact guy. But but everybody's a feeler and everybody's a fact person. But What I do want you to hear me saying is that you have to lead by what you know to be real, not what you currently feel. It has to be the engine drives your leadership. So Paul wrote four letters to the church at Corinth. We have two of them. It was a church on this narrow neck of land, this isthmus, that separates northern and southern Greek. It was the most decadent city probably by far in the Roman Empire. And Paul spent a year and a half there planting a church. He wrote this letter from another church plant in Turkey and he was getting reports back. He got some letters and he also got some emissaries who said, you know, things aren't going that great at Corinth. The leaders were acting like children. In fact, he said as much. He said in, in his letter, first letter, he said, I, I wanted to address you as spiritual, not children, but I can't because you're still children. You're acting like kids. You're, there's jealousy and quarreling you're acting like mere men. There's nothing wrong with being an infant when you are, in fact, an infant. A baby's a beautiful thing. I have a six-month-old baby grandson, Joseph. It's a beautiful thing. There's nothing wrong with being an infant in the faith. A new believer, also a beautiful thing. One of my best friends, Chris, is a two-year-old Christian. He's a 50-year-old man, two-year-old Christian. It's a joy watching him just learn new stuff. It's fun. But for an adult to act like a child, that's a terrible thing. And the really tragic thing is, is these guys thought themselves to be wise and very grown-up, but the actions and inactions of the leaders of Corinth demonstrated how far they were from real maturity. A child lives by their emotion. It's the engine that drives their lives, and we get that. An adult is supposed to live by truth and by love. So Paul, the great example, was willing to forego his rights to eat certain foods, to take a wage for his work, whatever, in order to serve these people, but he was unwilling to compromise the truth. When it came to absolute truth, he was resolute. When it came to preference, convenience, comfort, his feelings, he was quick to defer to those he led. This, by the way, is leadership at its best. Resolute on truth, deferring on matters of preference and convenience and how I feel. So Paul's letters to the childish Christians at Corinth were his attempts to teach and model what mature leadership looks like. Live by the truth, regardless of consequence. Put others first, regardless of cost. And that tension, that beautiful tension, demonstrated by how he dealt with two of his protégés, Timothy and Titus. Timothy had a Jewish mother and a Greek father. And traditionally, if you're a Jew, if you're born to a Jewish mother, but since his father was not a Jew, he had not been circumcised as a baby. And so Paul was going to take him on a trip, uh, uh, a mission trip, and he said, hey, Timothy, get circumcised, so you won't be in offense of the Jews we're going to be reaching out to. Was this necessary for Timothy's faith? No. It was just a matter of doing something that really didn't matter in order to not be an offense. Titus, he was a Greek, non-Jewish, who had become a Christian, and at one point the Judaizers, the people who were saying, hey, to be fully Christian, you got to go become a Jew first, get circumcised. They said, Titus needs to get circumcised. Paul said, no way, not going to happen. He's good to go. Do You see the difference? The motivation for Timothy was to not be an offense. There was no ultimate truth at stake. For Titus, ultimate truth was at stake. And this illustrates illustrates what Paul meant when he said to the Jews to become like the Jew to win the Jews, to those under the law become like those under the law to win those under the law. This is not Paul being a chameleon changing colors to fit in. This is not a guy chasing cultural currents or current emotions. His decision-making triage is pretty simple. If this is about absolute truth, like the truth of the gospel, I will not compromise, even if it cost me, and it did. This is not about absolute truth. If it's about personal preference, freedom, convenience, he will gladly defer to others, even when it costs him, and it did. So Timothy was about deferring. Titus was about living by absolute truth. The fuller passage is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, that famous passage where he says, though I'm free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone the weak I become weak to win the weak I become all things to all men that by all possible means I might save some and I do this for the sake of the gospel so here Paul sums up what he's been describing to this point in his letter not that he's a fickle people pleaser but that he is a convinced servant of God who from the secure position he has in his faith he can adapt his leadership to the needs of others he will never adapt the truth the facts of faith but he's going to adapt personal preference, personal convenience, personal comfort for the good of others. That's what it means to be a grown-up. The next passage is pretty famous, and I don't know if Dave used this in his training, passage or his training talk or not, but he said, don't you know that in a race all the runners run, only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize? talks about those who compete in the games that go into strict training to get a crown that won't last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever, so I don't run like a man running in circles, I don't fight like a man shadow boxing, I beat my body, make it my slave, so after I've preached to others, I won't be disqualified for the prize. The the Olympic games are the most famous games in Greece, the second most famous games were the Isthmian games, named after that little neck of land where Corinth was. the second most famous games happened right there, and Paul loved imagery from the games. A foot race yields one winner, so runners push themselves to win. And so don't overapply his analogy, many are saved, not just one. This is not about salvation, but about faithfulness. His point is, like the runner running to win, the follower of Christ gives their best. Winning is being found faithful, which, by the way, if all the trips get canceled... This training was, was not for naught. And, and we hope that faithfulness will lead to you going overseas. And we hope that that will lead to God moving in people's lives. But you're here because you're, you're wanting to be found faithful. And that's what winning here is. In the next verse, the word used for competes is a word that we get our word agony from. This competition is not half-hearted. It's heart, mind, body, soul. The winner of the Greek games won a crown made out of a pine wreath. Sometimes it was made out of celery, which I find really weird. And they were not doing this for the prize, clearly, but for the prestige. But just like this salad crown wasn't going to last, neither would the prestige. No one cares who won the Olympic games in 8050. No one cares who won them in 1950. It's all ultimately a prize that doesn't last. And so Paul says we train for a crown that will last forever. And the athlete denies himself or herself many lawful pleasures for a higher purpose. They get up early. They watch what they eat. They put themselves through discomfort, physical, mental, because of a singular goal. And so Paul's been saying to him, look, the same thing is true for us. We're going to put ourselves through things so that we won't do anything to hinder our own progress or the progress of others. So our spiritual, mental, physical, relational disciplines are putting others first, are not living by emotion, all this is not just running in circles of shadow boxing. This this really ties into what Dave, I didn't hear Dave talk, but I've heard him talk before on training versus trying. And Paul's painting a picture of what he's been teaching them in his letter, purposeful, mature, energetic faith. Not just doing stuff or not doing stuff based on moods or emotions or current cultural trends, which he addresses a lot to the Corinthians what others might think of us, what we think someone might think of us. He said, no. He said, I'm going to push myself to the limits to love God and love people. And none of this made Paul a miserable soul. It made him free. And it made his impact profound. His talk of potential disqualification is not about losing his salvation. It's a sports analogy. He doesn't want to be found unfaithful. He wants to push himself for the glory of God and the good of others. He proclaims with his lips freedom in christ he wants to live that freedom with his life so i hope you see your leadership as a grace gift to others i hope you do in romans 12 paul goes through different gifts and one of them is leadership he says that if if your gift is leadership then let him govern diligently maybe you don't feel particularly gifted Maybe you compare yourself to others. Maybe you feel inadequate at times. If you haven't, you will. It's, this, is, this summer is, is such a tremendous opportunity to do something that I know people in their 50s and 60s have never gotten to do, to lead a team into another country. There's people my age who haven't done that before. This is an amazing opportunity you have to do. Maybe you, Maybe you have... Emerging gifts of leadership, spiritual leadership, maybe maybe you don't. But whatever reason you're here, you're just doing this because this is what God said faithless looks like. I'm convinced God himself has made you a leader in this time and this place. And he's going to give you what you need for your sphere of influence. And your leadership, your speaking, your serving, your encouraging, it's a grace gift from God to others. And um, you need to see it that way one of the first one of the times where I was sitting in a meeting and um, I as you're as you're younger and you're kind of growing up you're and you're moving into college and after college you're you know you're learning and you're you're leading some and you're learning and you're leading some but mostly the people that are leading are kind of the next step and I was in a meeting where um, I they were talking about it was a it was a military staff meeting they were talking about planes and missions and all this and i was over there just sort of dozing off again and then they started talking about another issue and they said we're going to defer to the expert on this and then they all looked at me and i thought yikes you know if i'm the expert we're all in trouble but i was i have to be because it was time for me to be and so and and my gift my gift to that wing was to lead in my sphere of influence so First Peter says, each one should use whatever gift he's received to serve others faithfully, administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, should do it with one, as one speaking the very one, words of God. If anyone serves, do it with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. So I hope you see your leadership as a grace gift to others. And I hope you see it as a gift from God to you. Especially when emotions swirl inside of you and pressures swirl around you. Because no one has more opportunity to experience God than the leader who throws himself or herself on the mercy of God when feelings fail them. And when circumstances seem dark. And maybe you've been there. Um, I, didn't, I didn't come to that place, that place of terrible, terrible, Um, emptiness, coming to the end of myself until I was in my 40s. Maybe you've come there sooner. But there's a sense in which I would never wish it on you. (laughs) There's another sense in which I pray it'll happen to you sooner rather than later. Because it is a terrible, wonderful thing. James said, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds because you know the testing of your faith develops Perseverance, endurance, and that is essential that perseverance finishes work if you're going to become mature, grown up, complete. So this testing leading to perseverance is essential for maturity, for resiliency. Has anybody read Angela Duckworth's book, Grit, by chance? Have you read it? Isn't it a great book? And um, she she was trying to figure out how certain um, students thrived and why certain students didn't thrive and looking at all these different factors and she came up with I thought was a wonderful word it was grit and when I told my daughter who's a counselor in Denver hey has just read this book called grit and she's like dad I don't want to read it you know because I'm a dude and she knows I like these dude books I said it was written by an Asian woman she go I think I'll read it so <laughs> the title turned her off so in this book, she comes up with this grit scale. Did you take the grit scale? Yeah. <laughs> and so she, she was going to test it out. She went to West Point, and then she ended up going to, uh, I think she went to Air Force Academy as well. But she, they had this metrics, these elaborate systems for determining who's going to be successful in the academy. We had a young, we have a young man from our church just got into the Air Force Academy, and he started working on that back in eighth grade. He's a senior this year. And they look at your grades, of course, and your involvement in different activities, all these kind of things. And so they have this metrics to see who's going to make it, who's not, because they invest a lot in you. And they don't want you to get there and then fail. And their and their system didn't work that good. So they Angela say, Hey, can I try my grit scale? And they tried it, and it was very successful at predicting who was going to stay and who wasn't. And grit is kind of what you think it is. It's really what James was taught. It's the the Greek word hupomone, perseverance, endurance. And so leadership grit for the follow of Christ is this sanctified endurance. It's spirit empowered grit where you feel what you feel, but your, your feelings aren't the boss of you because you're not a baby, you're not a child. Feelings boss children around and then children try to boss adults around, but Leadership grit, this perseverance is, and these people who had grit, they felt what everybody else feel, but they didn't let the tail wag the dog. <laughs> feelings, feelings are a great servant and a terrible master, and, and especially for leaders. So another story. I, was, I, was, I met a guy two weeks ago for the first time. Um, my, my buddy, who's a brand-new believer, introduced me to him, and so the guy was very nervous. I went into his office. And so I'll give you just a little bit of the story. A little bit of story is enough to become discouraged. But he had um, his grandmother, grandfather, and uncle all committed suicide when he was a boy in the same year. His sister, when he was in his 20s, was murdered with a shotgun to the face. He had to identify her. Then he, was a, then he became an um, engineer on a train and had multiple people commit suicide using his train. And then two days before I talked to him, or three days, his best friend had died. And then he named seven or eight of the people really close to him who died. And then, oh, by the way, he had what they thought was terminal prostate cancer at 20, which usually that's a, an older man's disease. And so, I mean, the room was just dark, and he was dark. And, and his life, it was like he was already dead. I mean, his, 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 he had a wife who loved him, but he was just pulling away from life. So what do you say? And he looked at me kind of like, what have you got for me? And I said, you know, you probably walk around like a guy back from combat who's just going, what are you doing going to Walmart? <laughs> you ever seen the, um, um, what's the show about the, the EOD, the explosive ordnance guy, the guy who, um, remember the name of that show? The Hurt, Locker. the Hurt Locker, you seen The Hurt Locker? Yeah, so the guy, he's, he, he's an explosive ordnance detonation guy who, has been out there and seen terrible things, and then in one scene he's walking through the store and there's aisles and aisles of cereal, you know, and it just feels so mundane to him. I said, you probably feel like that. He goes, exactly. Uh, And I said, "So, and you're looking at people saying, you don't know what life's all about. You don't understand how people are dying. You don't know how hard it is. You're just living like nothing's ever going to happen to you. And I said, probably a lot of them are. Probably a lot of them are just whistling past the graveyard. They don't want to hear it. I said, but you, you have your hand only on the death dial, and you've got it tapped all the way up. You don't have your hand on the life dial, because there's life too. It's true. People are dying, a lot of people are dying. Your feelings are profound, death is everywhere. But every 2.5 days, the population of Wichita dies worldwide. And every one day, the population of Wichita is born. You know, both those things are true. His feelings shaped him, but he hadn't allowed the full facts to shape him. Here's the facts that he's focused on, and it's forming him and shaping him. But he hadn't learned to tune in both of those, because I said, you know, if you do, if you tune in all the experiences you've had and put your hand back on the life dial, you could really live an impactful, joyful life. And so he began to lighten up. He said, do you believe there's an afterlife? And I said, no, I know there is. He said, why do, you, why do you know? I said, because of Jesus. I know Jesus, and here's what Jesus said. And I told, everybody's kind of got their favorite hook. I told him my favorite hook. You guys from Rivers heard this before, but it's still my, I said, there, in, 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 all of, in all of human history, every single person who's ever lived, of the billions that have lived, there's four categories of people. Everybody goes in one. Those who are not exceptionally wise or good who don't claim to be God, that's most of the people have ever lived. Those who are exceptionally wise and good who don't claim to be God, you know, the few, the Mother Teresas, the Gandhis, whoever you want to put in that category. Those who are not exceptionally wise and good who claim to be God, those are called crazy. I've met two people who told me they were God. They weren't. And so, and then there's those who are exceptionally wise and good who claim to be God. How many people in the entire history of the world has been in that category? One. One. And the room again began to feel lighter. And he said, um, he sat back in his chair and he said, God better have some extra time for me. He went from God's not there to God better have some extra time for me when I see him. Because I'm going to have a lot of questions. And then I just smiled and said, No, you won't have any questions. You'll just fall down and worship like the rest of us. And then he smiled again. I wasn't diminishing what he felt and experienced. He'd been to about 10 professional counselors who had either over empathize or been shocked, and he didn't go back. He needed, and he responded to, feel what you feel, but here are the full facts. He didn't know he had a choice. He thought he was just a leaf tossed around by the wind and waves that were coming at him. Death and darkness and feelings of despair. I said, you're not cursed. He said, I am cursed. I said, you're not cursed, or you don't have to be. So he he began to lighten up because maybe it's her first time in years. He said, you mean I have a choice? I can live? I don't have to just be dominated by all these feelings? So you have a choice. You don't have a choice in all that comes at you this summer. You know, what happens outside of you, that's all, that's above your pay grade. You don't get to decide that. But whether you'll resolutely live and lead by what you know and not what you feel, that is something you can decide. Now, I will say, on both deployments in everyday life, I've had a battle buddy, someone I could share my struggles with. And, um, and you need a battle buddy, and I hope you have one. But I'm telling you, there might be times when it's not good for your team for you to go dump on them. And I'm not talking about being a fake leader. I hope by now you get what I'm saying, what I'm not saying. I'm not saying be isolated, aloof, obviously. Be authentic. But authentically believe this stuff. You know? I'm feeling this. That's for real. But what do I know to be true? And I'm going to lead out of what I know. This summer in life later on, there may be times when... It's not appropriate to take your troubles anywhere but Jesus. Well, then throw yourself on the mercy of God and go lead from what you know. You're not going to do well in life if you don't have battle buddies or whatever you call them. But as a leader, you're going to have to resolutely lead out of what you know to be true. You can leak hope. You can have doubt. But you lead from what you know to be true. So I'll leave you with a, a verse Hebrews 6:19 We have this hope as an anchor for our souls firm and secure. We have this hope as an anchor for our souls firm and secure. The gospel is that hope. That's the anchor. Let me pray for you. Thank you that even like as was prayed at the beginning that we have the gospel. We we know the truth. And not because we're smart, but because you've been good to us and have told us what's true and what's real. We don't have to guess. And I don't know, obviously, all that these folks have been through, what they've experienced, what emotional baggage they bring to this summer, or what's going to happen to them. But I pray that they would experience the wonder, the power of Leading out of what they know, throwing themselves on your mercy. And when feelings fail them, when circumstances are dark, that they would cling to their history with you and your history with them. And I pray this summer would be uh, a a wonder for them, even if it's a a difficult time. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.